Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Chris Niebauer. Dr. Niebauer is the author of the book, No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism. He earned his PhD in Cognitive Neuropsychology at the University of Toledo with a focus on the difference between the left and right sides of the human brain. He is currently a professor at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania, where he teaches courses on consciousness, mindfulness, left and right brain differences, and artificial intelligence. We discussed mind versus consciousness and the link to Eastern philosophy. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Chris Niebauer. Dr. Niebauer, thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the Consciousness Podcast. It's uh, really an honor to talk to you and, and hear your thoughts on, on consciousness. Well, thank you, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So I guess we can just jump right into it. And, and I'd love to hear your opinion. You know, after reading through your book, you've got a lot of interesting insight. Um, and I will link to the book for anybody listening. You can go to the, the website and link to it and get that book. Um, but so what, what do you think consciousness is? I mean, is it a neurological thing that's within the skull? You know, I meant I saw something you mentioned about a morphic field in the book. So, you know, what is your opinion, your thoughts on what consciousness is? Well, it's good that we're asking the question. If you go back in the social sciences, um, people really weren't even asking that question very much. Yeah. And, and if you go back to, the, let's say, the 1950s, in psychology, if they did ask the question, it had a very short answer, an illusion. Mm. Yeah, and, and so we've really went the 180 with consciousness. We, we've, we've, say in the last hundred years, we've went from assuming it was an illusion to going about as far in the opposite direction as you could go, assuming that it may be so fundamental, it may be the fundamental nature of our existence. Yeah. And so... Um, and then we, we, when we bring the brain into it, that's, you know, a whole other uh, neuroscience of consciousness is probably the hottest area in the social sciences right now. Right. In terms of trying to figure out. And, uh, but it's just, to me, it's, it's, I, I kind of consider myself an observer. And, it, it, and it's, a, it's a great show to watch, the consciousness show, you know, and just watch hmm. to see how, you know, we're asking the right, I think we're asking better questions. I don't know if we're asking the right questions yet, but we're asking better questions. And we're taking them, I don't want to say seriously, because I'll get into this in a little bit about left brain seriousness, but uh, we're being at least sincere about it. And you can see the academic community is, uh, when I put that I study consciousness now, I don't, I don't have to hide it. I can, Good. I, can <laughs> I, I can put that on my um, resume and I can tell people that I'm a consciousness researcher and we have legitimate conferences and, and they're international. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but the question, when I start my consciousness class, I try to tell them it's, look, this is not going to be disappointing, even though I'm going to start off with a really disappointing quote. And I read a quote that you may have heard this one that um, on the topic of consciousness, nothing worth reading has ever been written. Hmm. And I start off with that quote, and I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on who to attribute it to. But um, I start off on that quote, and I say, you know, uh, that sounds like a really strange place to start. But I'm going to show you that the study of consciousness, it, it has its own rewards, even though, in my opinion, it's a mystery that we will never solve. And you don't think we'll ever get there, huh? I, I don't think we'll ever get there. And I think that's absolutely fine. Hmm. I think it's like, you know, playing an instrument. I mean, people play an instrument for two reasons. One, because they want to be, you know, amazing. And other people like myself, I play a guitar because I absolutely just enjoy it. Right. For me, the consciousness mystery is it's, it's a very entertaining, worthwhile kind of thing to do. But I absolutely... Well, I'm not very conclusive about anything, but it's my position, at least right now, that there's something very unknowable. When I say unknowable, I'll get into some of the nature of the mind and all that, but I think there's Hmm. something just very unknowable. Uh, The thinking mind has its limitations, and we can get into that too. Um, But no, I don't think it'll be solvable, but but that absolutely doesn't mean we should not jump in and uh and have some fun with it and really it's 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 a it's a mystery that's going to tempt us 
And we're, I don't think we're in a position right now where we can help ourselves except to jump into it, even if it is unsolvable. Now, you mentioned asking the right questions. Were there, are there some right questions that we should be asking that might at least get us closer? Well, in the neurosciences, you got, a, it's, I don't know if it's a question or a fundamental assumption, but they started off with this premise, how does, you know, three pounds of gelatinous goo in the skull give rise to consciousness? Mm-hmm. And that's a great question. Um, but, you know, it already limits what kind of answers you're going to get. And so the neurosciences, and I myself would consider, you know, I'm a cognitive neuropsychologist. And so uh, that's my field. I specialize in the left and right brain. So I, I certainly think that the neuros, it's, it's worth it's worth your time. The brain is going to tell us a lot. I think it's going to tell us a lot about mind. As mm-hmm. far as consciousness, I'm not entirely sure what the brain is going to tell us about consciousness. Um, I think they're really different questions. And I spend a lot of my time in my book, online, um, helping to make a very clear distinction between what I what we'll talk about as consciousness, we'll just give it a word, even if we don't really know exactly what it is, and uh, what we'll call mind, which we can be far more definitive with. And I think the neurosciences are going to be far more profitable when it comes to figuring out what mind is. And, and, and what is the difference between consciousness and mind? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a really, really good question. I wish... Well, I, I got it from you. I wish, I, wish, I wish more people would actually ask that question and spend some time on it. Because when we look at the consciousness, when we look at how consciousness has been viewed through human history, so we've got two really different takes. So we've got the, the East. So let's just throw in for a moment and say Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and Taoism. And we'll just throw those in. Yeah. Now, if you, look at for some, if you look for some common threads under all three of those uh, ways of investigating, you'll find that they all, in an absolutely obvious way, know what mind is. They know that it's not our true essence, and they talk about it as something that we become hypnotized into believing that we are. And so, to the East, the mind is this, it's been discovered, you know, 2,500 plus years ago, they just knew what the mind was. And they'd, they'd never made the mistake of confusing consciousness with mind. And if you look in the West, what we find is really the exact opposite. So you can open up introductory books in psychology, and you can look at some of the major theorists out there. And the main mistake they're making, in my opinion, is they're confusing consciousness with mind. And so they'll talk, and I'll just give you one example that your listeners will probably, and this is no way criticism, I'm I'm just using it as an example. Hmm. And I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel Dennett. Mm famous, you know, probably one of the greatest living philosophers of our time. Right. And I don't know if you've read his book, Consciousness Explained. Not every word, no. Yeah, it's a, it's a you know, I was fortunate enough in grad school, I had an entire seminar on this book. And to show my students how frustrating it can be to confuse mind with consciousness, I, bre- I still have my original book from 1994. And it's ripped in pieces. Mm. <laughs> and I bring it in and I show him, I show my class that this is what happens when you confuse mind with consciousness. Because of course, if he had titled the book, The Mind Explained, I think it would have went over really, really well. It would have been, oh, okay, this is mind and, and here's the, the mechanisms of mind and here's how mind works. But he actually called it Consciousness Explained. And of course, most people know that Dennett's position is he doesn't really consider consciousness a very well, he doesn't really consider consciousness much of a problem at all. Right. So he, some people have joked that, well, this is, he should have titled it Consciousness Explained Away. And so, yeah, because he's an illusionist. Is that right? Yeah. So consciousness, yeah. There, there's no real mystery of consciousness. It just seems like a mystery. Hmm. And so I couldn't really put my finger on it back in the 90s. I just knew I was really frustrated. And it took me years to really figure out that what's happening here in the West is that we've made a a really big mistake. I think it's our fundamental mistake is that we're confusing mind with consciousness and and we're putting forth theories of mind and they're good theories, but they're not theories of consciousness. And and to confuse the two, um, 
it's going to make it it's going to make it appear like hey we're, we're, this, this theory is holding up pretty well and this is a good scientific theory and the answer is absolutely it's a great scientific theory for mind but in my opinion i don't think we have even close to a horrible scientific theory of consciousness and i don't think it's actually even possible so i am a little lost what what is the difference then what what is mind and what is consciousness and, and how how are they separated how are they linked you know what how are the two distinct okay well, this is another thing another mistake that we make in the west well we're we're getting better at it right now and that is this notion of okay well asking questions like where did mind come from as a species have we always had mind what other species have mind and then and when we ask that question what we can do is we can start to take apart mind from consciousness and just to give you an example let's look at the the history of the human species and um you know just a quick review you know maybe mm -hmm. two, two and a half million years ago humans showed up on the planet then say 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens showed up. And then say um, 70, some people say 70,000, other things I've read suggest it's around 40,000. So 40,000 to 70,000 years ago, we had the cognitive revolution. And all of a sudden the Homo sapiens, our species, we just, you know, everything ex cognitively exploded. We got language, we got, we got sophisticated tool making, we got our ability for symbolic thought. So one could really say that the mind was born. We, it, it suddenly came on the scene about 70,000 years ago. Hmm. So here's the thing that I want, here's the point I want to make. So the question we should be asking is, okay, so 70,000 years ago, we got these amazing mental talents. And that's why Homo sapiens probably won out against all the other different forms of humans. And so we won this kind of evolutionary war and here we are. And it's probably because of the mind and its talents and its ability for symbolic thinking and problem solving. But the question that I have is, okay, that's fine. So are you saying that we were not conscious before this? And so when you, so did, did mind just suddenly co-appear with consciousness or was it far more likely that we had some form of consciousness, that we were conscious beings in the same way that a dog or other mammals are conscious? It's just that mind, suddenly came on the scene. And so consciousness then is uh, an awareness. And we're stuck with using circular word, you know, definitions yeah. of that, you know, we're, I think we're stuck with it. Language is extremely limited because it reflects the mind and the mind is very limited. So when, when, when we try to get to, okay, well, what do you mean by this consciousness? Just to give, listeners, just a feel for what I'm trying to get at is exactly that. I would say raw, basic awareness without thinking. Hmm. And, and we were probably, you know, it's like if, if you've ever had the chance to like a newborn. And so like you're holding a newborn and, 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 you know, well, what are they experiencing? Well, they're not experiencing mind. They're not thinking about reality. They don't have verbal labels. They're not problem solving. They're just existing. You know, it's that raw consciousness. And that's why being around beings like that is why people, I think, like their dogs. You know, <laughs> dogs, you know, we like our dogs and cats because they're simple conscious beings and they're not dragging around this heavy mind. And, and, and we're all kind of plagued with this mind that came on the scene 40 or so thousand years ago and it did an outstanding job in terms of survival. It worked. But now we are stuck with it. And here we are 40,000 years later, 40,000 years later, and we've never even had so much as a, an update. We're dealing with the same mind that our ancestors had. And so we wonder about our problems and, and we wonder about things like anxiety and depression and, and we wonder why we can't find happiness. It's because that simple consciousness that lies below the mind it's there, but it's just like, you know, it's like looking at a, a beautiful sky that gets, uh, you know, there's a bunch of clouds in the way. And that's what the way the mind is. It's all these clouds that just kind of get in between you and pure consciousness. And, 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 and it worked in the past and it was absolutely necessary. 
we needed mind and we probably would not have survived all the hardships our ancestors dealt with without mind. But now we're in a really different position. Um, I mean, think about the world of our ancestors. If you go back to that, um, you know, early Homo sapiens uh, thousands of years ago, um, males had like a one in three chance of being murdered. So like, you know, (laughs) that's, that's a really different environment. And the mind had that, deal with problems that today it simply doesn't have to deal with. But we haven't had a way to really address and get into mind and, 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 and discover it because so many people are, they simply think they are mind. So this confusion I'm talking about between confusing consciousness and mind, it's so prevalent, particularly here in the West, that to even talk about it, so it wouldn't surprise me right now if a lot of listeners were just really confused because they're like, well, I don't get it. What are you talking? How can mind and consciousness be different? And it's, it, and it's as confusing as it is, it is that way until you recognize it for your, you, it ha, it's one of these kind of phenomenologically based things or experientially based things. It's one of those things you have to experience for yourself. And when you start, Disidentifying with mind, when you start recognizing it for what it is, all of a sudden you become completely aware of the consciousness, this kind of simple, kind of beautiful consciousness that lies underneath. And that's where people, that's when people talk about, oh, I found this peace. I found this, you know, I don't like to use the word enlightenment, but, you know, mm-hmm. something along those lines where they, they, they finally find some peace from mind. And so, um, yeah. And is, is there, is there a, a neurological basis to this that you know of? I, I remember a recent study, I think it's fairly recent out of Michigan, where they mentioned, you know, the default mode network and uh, maybe a dorsal attention network and one's outwardly focused and one's inwardly focused and the two kind of maybe combine for consciousness, but they also don't really mention consciousness versus mind and so the way the way you're talking about this almost seems like there might be something there or maybe not and and maybe you're not familiar with this so it's not really a fair question but it's just making me wonder you know is there some kind of a a neurological basis to the separation of the two in terms of attention so the neuropsychology of attention has worked out pretty well and, uh, and they found a lot of neurocorrelates, things that, you know, mm-hmm. go along with, uh, and, and if there's damage, then people's attention abilities change after the damage. Um, so the, there's no doubt that we can, there makes some pretty strong connections between all the functions of mind and neuropsychology. Uh, I think that's the real benefit. Um, but... Um, It's as much as we're going to learn from neuropsychology, and this is what I do. This is what I, you know, this is my discipline as a neuropsychologist. But as much as we do with neuropsychology, it's only going to take us so far. I I think it's one of these things that, um, and you can read a lot of articles on neuroscience, and and you can do a lot of intellectual uh, groundwork and, and, and investigation as far as the neuroscience goes. And it's only going to take you so far. Um, that's why the experiential component is so important. Mm. And of course, that's what we find in the big difference between the East and the West. The East has always investigated consciousness and mind through the means of meditation and, and Tai Chi and all these other different disciplines that um, quiet the mind enough so you can get a glimpse of consciousness behind it. In the mm. West, we just read books and we, and we read articles and we, and, we, and, we, and we pursue consciousness through the intellect, but the intellect only brings us back to more mind. And, and, and until we have those experiential moments, um, and that's one of the things, and um, just to bring up the split brain patients, because I think that there's such an excellent example of what neuropsych can really help and guide us into recognizing the distinction between consciousness and mind. And so um, I know you've had a couple people on your show that have talked about the split brain patients. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's good. To, I, I enjoy this because when I talk about the split brain patients, sometimes I'll get a comment, well, that was in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, that's all old stuff. And I really think, you know, we could still learn a lot about the nature of consciousness and mind simply by really taking a deep look at, at the split brain patients, what they can uh, tell us about this distinction. And so just a quick review of the split brain patients. And so these are people for reason, medical reasons, uh, experimentally had the corpus callosum. So there's this structure that connects the left and right sides of the brain mm -hmm. and they had it surgically severed. So in a way, when you call these patients split brain patients, that's really literal. I mean, they really have two functionally anatomically separate brains in this. Right. Oh, but my, one of the, my all time favorite experiments was done by Gazaniga and I talk about it in my book. And, um, and I think I'm just going to keep talking about it until at a cultural level, people recognize how significant it is. I talk to my students about this and I see them taking notes and, and but they're just doing it intellectually. They're not appreciating the significance that we can take into our own lives with this. And I'll, I'll explain how we can do this after describing them. Yeah. And so they severed the two sides of the brain. And what they would do is they would give command messages to the right brain. And so they could do this. So the right brain might get some message like raise your hand. And of course the patient does this. Now the left brain is completely clueless. It has no idea why this happened, but the left brain is, it has the control of speech. So when you talk to a split brain patient, it's the left brain that's talking back to you. Hmm. And, and the experimenter would ask a simple question like, okay, why is your hand in the air? Now the left brain is <laughs> absolutely in the dark. It's clueless. And it should have absolutely said this. I am clueless. I have no idea why my hand is in the air. That, that message, you know, I don't know. And it truly doesn't. The most significant finding is that that's not what these split brain patients, left brains actually did. The left brain effortlessly, confidently, with what you could call like absolute certainty, made up a plausible explanation that was almost always wrong. So they would say something like, oh, you know, my hand fell asleep or I had to get up because I wanted to get a drink, you know, and the left brain was, it was this master. You just make up a story. It would make up a story. And it didn't just make it up in the sense that, okay, well, you know, like you can, you know, when someone's just trying to tell you something or trying to convince themselves, the way the left brain acted was it absolutely believed this. So these patients would pass a lie detector test because they absolutely, the left brain believed hmm. it absolutely. And so, this is one of the discoveries that Kazaniga made back in the 70s. And it's one of the things that I have been pushing because it's, this is the, what I think they discovered was the mind. What they discovered was how the left brain creates this interpretive mechanism that is continuously trying to figure out the world around us. And so the left brain is just kind of waiting for the evidence. It's like a, you know, a judge in a courtroom. It's waiting for any evidence to be presented. And even if it doesn't have evidence, it makes it up. And then it, you know, just tells a story. And that's the way we live our lives. That's the way uh, the ordinary person lives their lives. They, this interpretive mechanism in the left brain is on from morning to night. It's continuously trying to figure the world out. It works mostly with language and it provides interpretations. And for the most part, most of us are absolutely clueless about it. We think we mistake who we think we are with this interpretive linguistic mechanism in our left brain. And is, does the right brain put some kind of a check, check and balance kind of system on that to say, no, no left brain. That's not what happened. This guy just asked me to put, put the hand up in the air. In normal people. Yeah. In the split brain patients, there is no balancing mechanism. They can't do that. But in, like my brain, if you said, Stuart, raise your hand over your head, I would do it. And then when you say why, it's what well, Chris, you just told me to. Exactly. But, so there is a balance there, even though my left brain is doing the same thing as a split brain patient. It oh. has the same functionality. It's just that it's getting feedback from the right brain. Absolutely. Well, it's exactly. And so it's not kind of like let loose on its own. Yeah. But even though 
we have this right brain to balance things out, you can still notice the interpreter. And I tell my students to do, to do this. And when I, like on my YouTube channel, I have a lot of exercises where I, help, I ask people to just, instead of being the interpreter, instead of getting totally caught up in it and believing that's who you are, learn to become the observer of the interpreter because this interpretive mechanism is always on as long as we're awake. And it's continuously trying to figure out the world around us. So it becomes very interesting. And so you can walk down the hallways and you'll talk to yourself. And that's the interpreter doing its thing. And, it's, and it'll be creating explanations and interpretations online. Oh, why is that person laughing? Oh, is it something? Oh, maybe I shouldn't have wore the shirt this morning. Hmm. And, you know, and um, oh, you know, did I, uh, you know, if people start laughing, then, oh, well, that was a clever comment I just made. And, you know, and, it just, and, it's, just, and it's on all the time, from, not for everybody, but for a good many of us, that interpretive mechanism is on and we don't recognize that it's not who we really are. And, and we don't realize that that voice in the head is just a program that was installed like 40,000 years ago to help us survive. And at this point, we simply don't need it. We either don't need it or we can maybe use it maybe 15, 20 minutes a day. And that's, and that, and that's pretty much all it's good for. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I met, you mentioned that in the book, and I don't know if I had that later on, but the whole how we, we tend to associate ourself with those thoughts that are coming from that left brain. Well, think about the left brain and what the, what the, what the mission of the left brain is and how we won this battle for survival. We installed a mechanism whose main goal is to try to figure the world out, to try to create a story so it can predict the future and interpret the past. And when it was doing all this, it came up with a really interesting hypothesis that unfortunately was just as wrong as so many of its other wrong hypotheses. And that is, well, you're having so many thoughts, there must be a thinker to the thoughts. In other words, along with all these other interpretations that the left brain has, which we can notice, how often the left brain is wrong. And you can notice how they, sometimes, you know, you have a, this kind of paranoid thing at work and you think your coworkers are conspiring mm -hmm. against you. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I was totally, I was completely, completely wrong about that. And it's, and it's really interesting. I had a thing yesterday where I had a package that was being delivered and I saw the truck pull up and I, they got some stuff out of the back and then they just left. And I could, and my interpreter started saying, well, why did you do that? Why would you just pull up and you, you didn't leave my package? <laughs> and and my, I could I'd listen to myself talk to myself and it was like, oh, oh, you know, maybe you got distracted and try to create some story, but trying to explain why someone would do something like this. And of course, the, the reality of the whole thing was is that when I, I didn't notice, they had actually gotten out of the truck and left my package and it was sitting there the whole time. <laughs> and so, you know, it was one of these times where I was able to catch the interpreter and be like, oh, you were so off track. What were you thinking? <laughs> Yeah. And the more we catch these mistakes of the interpreter, which are, it's, it's really a, it, probably one of the best things we can practice uh, for our own sanity is to start recognizing the interpreter throughout the day, recognize that while it's not always wrong, it's often wrong. And that it's on this kind of almost automatic pilot. It's, it's a very um, mechanistic system that is just trying to figure out the world. It's, it has a slight tendency to be paranoid. And one of the main assumptions is it's going to create this idea of who we think we are. Yeah. So it creates the idea of the self, the ego, and that carries a whole lot of baggage with it too that isn't really necessary. And what about the right brain then? Because I think you mentioned that the, the two sides are, that can have completely different types of consciousness. So the, the left one is making all these judgments. What, what are the right one doing? Well, there's some research. I don't know if you're familiar with um, V.S. Ramachandran, and he's done some really interesting work with neuroscience and, and consciousness. And in his theory, he suggests that the right brain is actually, like you mentioned earlier, it's there to keep the left brain in check. Hmm. And if things get too outrageous, then the right brain kind of brings the left brain back to reality. Um, so that's one of the functions. Uh, 
in my view, and this idea goes back, it's one of the oldest ideas about the two sides of the brain. Uh, I think the date is something like 2500 BC. Hmm. And I was, um, and I'm not good with names, so I'll have to draw a blank on this one too. But uh, it was it was one of the, probably the first ideas about how the two sides of the brain differ. And it is one of the, that has just stuck in my mind that the, the function of the right brain is to actually be in reality. It is, for, so from a cognitive viewpoint, what we've talked about the right brain is, well, it's this, it processes space. It allows us to navigate through space. Well, of course, because that's reality. It's not thinking, of, like if I reach out and you know, grab my coffee cup, I'm not gonna think about it. I just do it. And so right. in my view, the right brain is far more in touch with the immediate now, the embodiment of living in the real world. It's not obsessed with thinking about existence as much as actually experiencing existence. And that's kind of what the, the meditation is, is, is quieting that down. And in your book, you mentioned a patient who I think was also, I don't know if I'll get her, her job title right, but she was also maybe a, a neuroscientist um, who had a, maybe a stroke and it turned off her left brain for a while. And so she kind of got to experience, um, observe herself and her feelings. And she had, she almost was like enlightened from that. Yeah, absolutely. The story of Joe Bolt Taylor, if your listeners haven't checked it out, it's, uh, her book was called My Stroke of Insight, but uh, she also has an outstanding 15 minute TED talk you can check out. And she tells her story. And it's one that I think through the consciousness researchers well, it, 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 it divided people. So for people hmm. like me, I took her story extremely seriously. I think it's extremely informative about the nature of the two sides of the brain. And then the other side sort of says, well, it was just one person and we can't make much of one person. But in my view, I think her story is very telling about the nature of the two sides of the brain and exactly this idea of separating mind from consciousness. So you're right. She was a neuroanatomist, which these individuals, they label and uh, categorize the brain. So she was mm-hmm. a very left brain kind of person, had a massive left brain stroke. So her left brain went offline. And the way she described it is, well, she said it was what you imagine that Buddhist would refer to as nirvana. It was it, when, when she got to experience right brain consciousness, it was non-judgmental. It was compassionate. It was, um, and there was no place, I love this when she described it as there's no place where she ended and the rest of the universe began. Hmm. So she lost the idea of a separate self. Everything was connected. And, um, but that left brain, you know, kind of was struggling and then, you know, call 911 do, and she eventually got help and she, and she got the left brain to come back online. And, and she lives in a very enviable position. I think it's a really, uh, she could be a really good uh, role model for Western culture because now that she's got the left brain back online, she can use it when she has to, but she doesn't live there. She, does, she's, she doesn't live in that interpretive consciousness all the time. So she talks about how if, if she wants, she can turn it on. If she needs to do something practical in this world, get something quote done and, um, you know, for her job or something. But then she has a kind of direct line to this right brain blissful consciousness that so many people Hmm. have heard of. And for her, um, you know, she's had the experience now. And so she can sort of go there whenever she wants. It's amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's one of these things that uh, I think, I'm not sure the date, I think it's been about maybe 15 or so years since her book came out. So it's been around a while, but I still think it's one of these things like the split brains that, you know, consciousness researchers and, and not just consciousness researchers, we're all consciousness researchers in a way. But I think just the, uh, when it really hits the general public, I think, uh, I think it could make a qualitative change in the nature of our existence from being very left brain dominant or a very left brain dominant culture we're in a way hypnotized to a great extent by the nature of the processing of the left brain. And we're just living in a state of imbalance. 
And it's not like we want to all have a stroke and just turn our left brains off because the left brain can be extremely useful under the right situations. But we need some of those experiences like she had to be at peace with the current, with the present moment. Yeah, particularly now with so many people who are home, um, there's nothing wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet that left brain is just, it, it's relentless. It keeps spinning stories of, uh, oh, this is going to happen. This horrible thing is going to happen. I, I have to do this because, you know, this and this and this all has to happen. It, see, the thing about the left brain, because it's an interpretive machine, it takes on a sense of seriousness. So imagine if we had a neural mechanism that created interpretations about the world, but it said, well, you know, maybe this is right, maybe it isn't. We would never act on it. So this left brain interpretive mechanism had to have a sense of seriousness. Like hmm. these things, this is why people believe their beliefs. So the left brain creates these, not just hypotheses about the world, but sometimes these get collected together and they form what we call belief systems. Now there's nothing wrong with belief systems in and of themselves until we believe in them and take them very, very seriously. If you say, okay, well, you know, why have human beings been fighting each other? Why do we start wars? Why do we, well, how often is it over our beliefs? And how, how often is it not just over our beliefs, but beliefs that we take very, very seriously. And the problem yeah. is this left brain, which in my view is this neuropsychological center of being terribly over serious. And I can talk about some of that too, our cultural change over the last 20 years about how we've really become very, very serious. But, um, and you can see how that's, uh, it's a felt sense of our consciousness right now. People are, a lot of people are in their house, nothing's wrong. And they're having a really difficult time being comfortable with just not doing anything, being comfortable with just being in the moment, being in the now, and not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, we don't seem to do that well at all. We're really, really, really terrible at it. And one of the, um, and we're feeling the effects of, of being a very unbalanced society right now. And so we're, and of course, you know, some people are, when we talk about the physicality of suffering, that's a whole different thing. But when you talk about the mental suffering and the mind, the restless monkey mind, which sometimes it's called, I would refer to the left brain as that kind of neural origins of that monkey mind Hmm. saying, I've got to do something. I've got to go to work. This has to be, or if this doesn't happen, this is good. You know, all the over seriousness of that left brain is one of the reasons why people are having such a really difficult time, even though um, the right brain knows nothing is wrong right now. Everything's okay. And that's what people like Joe Bill Taylor, that's what people get when they go into meditation for a long period of time. They recognize that it's okay to sit here. It's okay that nothing's happening. It's okay to do nothing. Yeah. You know? I don't always have to, but you can see how that is a program and you can see how that helped evolution. So imagine going back to our distant past and imagine two versions of our ancestors. One was okay with whatever happened. Well, they would be extinct very quickly. The other one always felt like, you know, this desire to change and be different and and want something better, that relentless need for something more. And that's the one that won out, and that's the one we're stuck with. So we've got this left brain that's continuously wanting what it doesn't have. Yeah. And, and it sets us up for a really endless cycle of uh, changing our life situation and then being kind of amazed at how quickly we adapt to it. And you can go out and buy whatever car you want, and it's exciting for a very short time, but the mind has this mechanism where it very quickly gets used to things mm-hmm. and, and it continuously wants more. And when you get stuck in that mode of existence, it's a very unhappy place to be. And how do you break out of that? I mean, this isn't really a, a self-help podcast, mm-hmm. but in, in, the, in terms of consciousness and dealing with the, the two different 
parts of the brain and, and thought and consciousness and mind, how, how do you, how does one break out of that, that way of thinking and that, that cycle of uh, constantly consuming, getting bored, consuming, getting bored? There's two really practical things I could tell your listeners that you can do to help improve. And I don't normally talk about self-improvement. I'm more of into consciousness, but there are times when these things come up. One is, and this is essentially a spiritual practice from the East, and it's something that is across Buddhism, Taoism, and it's simply watch the mind, become the observer. And mm. so when you're sitting there on your couch and, and, and maybe you're just sitting comfortably breathing and, no, I got to do something. This is boring. Start becoming the observer of the voice in your head going, this is boring. And, and it, it, it kind of becomes almost humorous. And it's like you're listening to this voice that's bored trying to tell you to do something and you're just like, what's, what's wrong with what I'm doing right now? <laughs> and then, oh, but I, you got to do something there. Oh, if you don't get this done, then someone's going to be upset at work. You know, and it just so become the observer of the interpreter. And that will actually um, create that disconnect. The more you can become the observer of the interpreter, the more you're going to relate to what I'm talking, I was talking about earlier, the more you're going to relate to what I think of as right brain, simple awareness, right brain, simple consciousness. And the more you get that going, that's when you get this experience of everything is okay. That's what, exactly what Joe Paul Taylor had when she had her right brain experience. Everything's exactly fine as it is. Nothing needs to be done everything's exactly <laughs> perfect the way it is. And it doesn't have to be an overwhelming experience where you go and give all your possessions away. It just has to be a momentary experience where just for, you get a little bit of it. And, yeah. like, and, and then, then it sort of takes the seriousness away from that interpreter. So that's, that's one thing. Become the observer of the voice in your head. Don't identify with it. Start listening to it. And so you think about it. It's an interesting conscious kind of, experiment. So we talk to ourselves a lot. So are you the one talking or are you the one listening to the voice? And yeah, that's interesting because you say I am not my thoughts. Yeah. And that's a, you know, classic Eastern um, practice. I know I'm, I'm not my thoughts and uh, I'm the witness to the thoughts. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one really practical way that you can uh, disidentify with the interpretive mind. And, and the moment you disidentify with it, the, the moment, because I called the book, No Self, No Problem. Really, looking back, I think a, an a equal title would have been No Mind, No Problem. Mm. You know? It's the mind, because it's this ancient problem solver, it's so obsessed with solving problems it doesn't have much to do nowadays. I mean, before it was trying to not be murdered. It was trying to not, you know, it had an ice age yeah. to deal with. It had no food. Now we're sitting, not some, not everyone, but many of us are sitting in comfortable houses and, and we've got our food supply and, and, and the mind doesn't know what to do now. And so it's creating all these kind of like, you know, I don't know, you know, it's one degree too too hot or too cold in here. It's coming up with these things that it's, when you start catching some of the complaints of the interpreter, <laughs> it can be extremely humorous. I have my students do this as a practice. I, I, we um, take a uh, Friday and we say, what's the silliest thing you've ever complained about? And you could see the mind. It gets, abs it gets so absurd that you could not help yourself except to laugh at it. Yeah. And so that's one thing. Now, the second thing, is to re recognize that all of the thoughts in our head, the voice in the head, the kind of voice in the skull, the kind of repetitive, nagging thoughts, the intrusive thoughts that we have, many of these are a reflection. And this is one of the things the Buddha discovered, is that they're a reflection of what we do during our days. And so if you complain and you complain the voice in the head is going to be a kind of a mirror image of that. So if you go off and you complain all day, then of course the voice in the head is going to reflect that. And you're going to hear that voice and it's going to keep complaining and finding fault with things. Hmm. The interesting thing about the voice in the head is we do have a little bit of ability to change this. And so um, musicians might be able to relate to this. 
And so uh, if you go off and say you complain all day, don't be surprised if the voice in the head is filled with complaints. Hmm. If you play an instrument all day and the mind, it, that's all it does is hear music, don't be surprised that the voice in the head turns into the music in the head. And so uh, that voice that you're dealing with is a reflection of what you've occupied your attention with over the last, say, month or so of your life. And if you've engaged in a lot of complaints and problems, then the mind has its own sort of momentum to it, and it's going to continue down that path. Right. If, you, if, if, you've, if, you've, if you've fed the mind a different diet, and you fed it music, art, and this is one of the reasons people were still kind of mystified why music and art and meditate, why did these all have such healing abilities? Why, why, why are they so good for us? Even though in a practical sense, maybe they don't pay off in terms of money. Because they're all reprogramming the mind instead of dealing with problems, you're dealing with music or art or poetry. And then the, you have a different experience throughout the day. Instead of um, listening, so I've just had this kind of now that I've been home and no commute time, and even though I've been pretty busy with things, I have had some extra time to play guitar a little bit more. And I've noticed that instead of talking to myself so much, I actually just hear music. And it's hmm. been a much more pleasant experience. So if you're going to have a voice, you know, or if you're going to have something inside the skull with you, um, why not program it to be something a little bit more entertaining than just, you know, this nagging, complaining voice? Yeah, that's interesting you can kind of train it or change it to be more, more creative and, yeah. and less, less uh, critical. I don't know if critical is the word, but you know, less analytical and, and more on the creative side. And that's and not to get too you know technical with all this, but if you follow Buddhism and you get into uh, you know, the idea of desire and then the Buddha had this eightfold path. And if you really unpack the eightfold path, so much of what the, the Buddha's insight was focused on is what we do is important. You know, yeah. about right speech, right action, right livelihood. And so the stuff that you're doing during the day, and this is why, if you notice, there's a really big movement for um, to be grateful and, and to practice being grateful, to create a journal and write down three things that you're grateful for every day. The, what you're doing when you, you're training your mind you're retraining that intellectual mind to focus on something totally different now. And so if you can focus on gratitude rather than complaining, you're going to really change the nature of your day-to-day -day conscious experiences. If you're stuck with that. If you're yeah. stuck, you know, I mean, really, one of the things that we follow, you know, the neuroscience community has become a bit obsessed with long-term meditators now. And of course, you know, at some point when you've taken a lifetime and you fed the mind so much peace and, and, you know, tranquility, and eventually these individuals are not really dealing with this intrusive thinking mind the way most ordinary people are. And that's why they feel so absolutely at ease with whatever they're doing. Yeah, they've calmed, calmed that inner voice or, or changed it to something completely different. But for us ordinary people, you know, we're not on the, you know, uh, monastery. We don't have eight hours a day to meditate. We need kind of practical ways. to. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's little things you can do, you know, observe the voice in your head, create a little distance between your consciousness and the voice in the head, which helps you become more identified with this kind of simple consciousness, which as long as you're identifying with this simple awareness, there's never any problems and that simple awareness. All problems are coming from that intellectual mind. Um, and Interesting. Then, and then learn to reprogram it a little bit. Be very careful. I was telling my students, be very careful about what you do, which of course is the, you know, it just took us 2,500 years, but we eventually caught up with the Buddha and we realized, you know, in cognitive therapy, a cognitive therapist will tell their patients all the time, be careful what you do because you'll end up believing it. Mm. And so this is one of the reasons, you know, people watch the news and then they tell these stories and there are these like, you know, 
terrifying stories of our future. And I'm just very careful of either putting that kind of information in my mind in the first place, or and certainly not talking about it and telling it and perpetuating it, because the more you talk about it, the more your mind will believe it. Yeah. Interesting. That's good practical information. Um, before I get to a couple wrap-up questions here, I have a couple maybe uh, tangential things to, to ask you um, that I found in, in your, re- your writing and even a question you sent me on your own. Um, in your book, you refer to intuition as, quote, another f- valid form of consciousness. And intuition has always been, um, along with creativity, is always, I've always been curious about that. So what, what do you mean, you know, or what are your thoughts around intuition as, as another form of consciousness? What does that mean? Not to be critical of our particular culture. The West has some amazing things that uh, we've accomplished. Yeah. One of the things that we had need to work on, in my opinion, is that we don't cultivate the intuitive mind. We have mm. virtually, and, and, and there's a good reason for this. If you look back in the 60s and 70s, cognitive psychology was so busy finding so many faults and and fallacies that the mind was subject to. There's a list of about 300 fallacies of the mind. So when we try to use our gut, there's about 300 ways that we can go wrong. (laughs) And so it's a dangerous path because we've been taught that, look, you know, using your gut, um, like stereotypes and... and, um, availability heuristic representative there's a whole long list of these i teach a whole class and we spend about two weeks on these in my cognitive class and so we become very skeptical of our gut and for a really good reason now in my view the mind is capable of so many mistakes and and that's exactly what we're talking about with the left brain it just comes up with a whimsical story and it believes it with absolute certitude and that gets us into a lot of trouble. Think about all the trouble in humanity that has been caused because someone was absolutely certain that they were right, and it turns out historically they were not. Now, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about when we talk about actual intuition. Intuition is a really different process. The problem is, is that we haven't investigated it enough to where we have a, a, a language where we can talk about the two separately. And in the end, it may actually require a developed sense of intuition to know the difference between a fallacy of the mind and a creative product of the intuitive, of intuitive consciousness. Hmm. And so we're kind of stuck in the situation and until we cultivate intuition and, and until we cultivate, and this is one of the things I tell my students because um, with AI, artificial intelligence, becoming so advanced in replicating the processes of mind, we're at a time where mind is going to be, the human mind may have outlived its usefulness. Machines may actually be doing mind better than we're doing mind. Hmm. So where does that leave us? Well, if you don't cultivate your unique human creativity, if we, and that's, so that's, how do we have one up on the machines? Well, that's our edge is intuition the tap into that source of consciousness which in my view is this is the um origins of all actual creativity is that simple consciousness that we all share and um and, and if we can and if we tap into that and, and becoming creative isn't well i'm not going to make it sound like it's simple but it's when the mind is quiet, the creative process begins. And if you can quiet the mind a little bit, um, you'll see uh, that things will just start appearing in consciousness. And they do. When I meditate, I start having really good ideas, and I tell myself, not now. Yep. And, it, and there's no way. It's very difficult to get uh, Again, um, uh, a lot of scientists will talk about this, how going for a walk – taking a bath, you know, really just saying to hell with it, get, you know, let the mind just, okay, the mind has done its work. I can't take it anymore. I'm just turning the mind off. And as soon as they do this, then all of a sudden, that's when the epiphany hits. Mm. And, and, and it's just, it's because 
they quieted the mind a little bit and they tapped into the original source of quality creativity and that's consciousness. Now, I don't know if artificial intelligence will, I don't know if, they, if it has access to that consciousness or not. That's a whole different thing. I, I, I have no clue, but yeah. um, I know that from my own experience and those who have studied the creative process, that if you force it, and if, you, if you're caught up, identified with mind, and you're trying to do it for a reason, you know, I've, I have to be creative because I need this promotion. Mm-hmm. You're doomed. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's, the mind is just, you're just going to get more mind. Right. And, and that's why you've, you know, get, you know, lose your mind. We, we all have to lose it. I think Alan Watts said it perfectly that we should all lose our mind just for a little bit each day hmm. and come to our senses. Yeah. And, and, and what he was talking about is getting out of that analytical thinking mind and just getting into that pure, simple consciousness for a while. And when you do that, you cannot help but to be creative. It just happens. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, well, any, any other thoughts? Anything I did not ask you that you want to get out there? Uh, uh, well, we could, you know, the idea of the self and, and the ego, um, you know, the, 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 we sort of tied it in a lot with the mind. And I think that's very accurate. And so, you know, I've been pointing a lot of fingers at the mind as being like, look, you know, the mind is the problem. It's not so much that it's the problem. I think it's just a matter of perspective, you know, that um, I have a, uh, a saying that I talk a lot about in my cognitive science classes that uh, either you learn to use the mind or the mind will continue to use you. Hmm. And that's kind of putting it as simply as you can, you know, the the mind is, it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's not um, trying to make us suffer. It's not a punishment. The mind is just a program that came online a long time ago to solve a problem that we no longer have to deal with. And if we can, if we can learn to disidentify with it through meditation, through psychedelics, whatever means you can throw at it. For some people, um, it's knitting. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, whatever method you have to kind of turn the mind down a little bit, the more we can appreciate that, that so the source, that simple awareness, um, the more we're going to qualitatively change the nature of our existence. And so um, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I think that there's a lot to be said in recognizing mind mm-hmm. and, and, and becoming to appreciate that, that the consciousness, the, this, and it doesn't have to be for a very long time, uh, moments every day. Take, you know, I tell um, one of my, uh, a very simple practice, I call it one conscious breath. And so no matter what's going on in the day and you, and you may get depressed and you may have anxiety and you just take a moment and you just experience one simple conscious breath and you just breathe in and then slowly breathe out. And just for one moment, you're not your thoughts. You're not caught up in this problem solving mechanism and you're just in the here and now for just a moment. And then you can bring future and past and all that stuff back and you can deal with it a little bit more effectively. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's good practical information. Um, it's funny you mentioned the, the knitting. I don't know if you happen to see it, but uh, Ron Doss's yeah. movie, Becoming Nobody, he mentioned an anecdote about that, about a woman who seemed to just already intuitively understand everything he was trying to teach and he asked her, he said, you seem to understand all this already. She says, yeah, I knit. Yeah, that's my favorite story. My students really enjoy that one. I've yeah. been telling that for a long time. And, um, and, they, and the, the story, the, the Ron Doss and so many others, um, you know, they're out there helping us bring balance to, uh, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ian McGilchrist and his book, The Master no. and the Emissary. Um, 
It's a, it's a really fascinating story about the left and right brain. And he feels that, um, that our Western culture, we're just imbalanced. And, and, there's a, and in fact, Robert Ornstein, this goes back to the 70s, where people have been talking about the imbalance in our culture, because we rely too much on language. And, and, and this has gotten to be, you know, very extreme. And you feel this as a university professor. I think of all the places of seriousness, the universities have become extremely serious in the last 20 years or so. And, uh, and we needed something to balance that out. And, yeah. And, and so it's great to have people, you know, Ram Das and, and people to share their experiences. And so some of your listeners might be kind of like, okay, you're talking about the simple right brain consciousness and, and, and they're processing it as an intellectual kind of thing. Hmm. And, and that's fine as the beginnings, but, you know, it's little steps and eventually, you know, all you need is that kind of couple experiences of how peaceful uh, consciousness is as consciousness is without the intrusions of the mind and one thing and you're hooked. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what, uh, you know, your, uh, your students are awfully lucky to have access to you and, and all this that you've got going on. And, and some of the experiments in your book just had me laughing out loud, but what, what is coming from you? What's next for you? What are you going to be studying or writing about or what excites you about consciousness in general? What's, what's next from you? Um, actually, I just uh, signed a contract. So I'm going to do another book soon. It'll be coming out maybe next summer. Okay. And the focus is on much of what we talked about today, that when we get to consciousness, consciousness isn't what the thinking mind believes it to be. And so we have mixed up consciousness with the thinking mind. And what I really want to do is uh, very explicitly, um, particularly for people in the West to understand that, that when we talk about mind, the mind is a really separate, qualitatively separate entity. And it's um, uh, clouding our, our, our experience of hmm. actual uh, pure, simple consciousness that I talk about. So I'm working on that, and I have a YouTube page. I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, exploring different uh, aspects of consciousness and the self and the ego. And, um, and Yeah, you've got a great YouTube channel. I'll make sure to link that up. Thanks, yeah. So people can go find that. And it's, uh, and it's you know, um, interesting to get feedback from people. You know, my favorite experience is when someone – recognize that simple awareness for the first time. Mm. And, um, and, and I didn't really go into this, but there's a lot of mechanisms of mind that I believe are built in to distrust that experience. Hmm. Like the mind is, has this built-in mechanism to make sure that you never go beyond mind. Hmm. I mean, it had to have that or else it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked so well. And so, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not as a simple uh, thing to simply just go, look, you know, you're not mind. Yeah. And, and, and you could talk about it, but getting people at that experiential level, that's always been um, sort of what I felt like I've been around here for to just kind of provide a little hint here and there and a little guide, um, a little exercise or something that will uh, help people achieve exactly, you know, what I was able to do. Yeah. And, um, and again, uh, it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be something where, you know, you give up everything in your life and move to a mountainside and just meditate all day. Right. You know, uh, nothing, you know, it, on the surface of it, you can have that experience and it can fundamentally change the way you experience your existence. And yet from an outward viewpoint, other people around you may not even really notice that anything's even happened. Right. You still go to work. You're not going to, you don't quit your job. You don't, mm -hmm. you know, sell all your, you don't, you don't do anything necessarily very radical. You just, it's an inner transformation. And, uh, and it, and it happens to those who are around you. It may seem extremely subtle, but to you, it can be the, um, that qualitative change that, um, you know, it's really the difference between taking life extremely seriously and seeing it as a game, you know, a play, yeah. you know, something here that was meant to be fun and enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. I myself have been through quite a, 
a transformation over the last few years and I have a lot of that inner peace and, and whatnot. And I look at my wife and my daughter and I say, I feel so different. Am I different? And they're like, no, you're the same. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is, it is a funny, a funny perspective there. So I do encourage everybody to go out and get no self, no problem. How neuro psychology is catching up to Buddhism. It's really a great book with a lot of really cool <clears throat> exercises in there. So, um, yeah, Dr. Niebauer, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your wisdom with us. It was a, a fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful for your time. Well, thank you, Stuart. It was a pleasure being on your show. I uh, appreciate your listeners and um, I'd appreciate any feedback. If someone wants to leave me something on my YouTube channel or my email, everything's pretty accessible and pretty easy to find. I'd uh, you know, appreciate any comments people have or questions that might have come up after listening. Awesome. And I'm sure that they will. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.